Good evening to another edition of Black Teachers Matter. I'm your host and producer, Sharon Eaton-Hinton. On WBCALP 102.9 FM Boston, we're Boston's community radio station. I've got some wonderful guests here this evening. Ms. Kelly Ferreira, who's a stellar ninth grade teacher at a local charter school, which we won't name because they're not paying us. And we've got Mr. Michael Holiday, who's representing so many different organizations. We're all going to talk about that this evening. We're live here on WBCALP 102.9 FM. You can't call us, but we're definitely going to be calling on you to give us all the information that helps to build a nation. Um, and the views and opinions here are solely our own. The following commentary does not necessarily reflect the views of the staff and management of WBCA or the Boston Neighborhood Network. If you would like to express another opinion, you can address your comments to Boston Neighborhood Network, 3025 Washington Street, Boston, Massachusetts, 02119. To arrange a time for your own commentary, you can call WBCA at 617-708-3215 or email radio at bnnmedia.org. Did you like that? We did that. I mean, we definitely, we did that. And we had the music and the whole thing going on. See, we have to do that because we never know if there's going to be something controversial. But when you're talking about education, it is controversial because education in this country is in serious need of, well, I would, some people would say dem demolition, right, Michael? And uh, I can see you on camera now and she's very, um, She's very with child. So there's actually three people in the studio with us. One person is not going to be talking. Um, so let me say hello to my guests this evening, Kelly Ferreira and Michael Holiday. Uh, good evening. We're live here. And uh, thank you for being my guest here tonight. We are um, going to start talking about what you do. Now, you gave me your bios, but... Um, I, I want to hear it from your voice. You guys have been in education for a while. And actually, Michael, and we're going to let the queen and um, go first because this lady's first here because it's my show. So um, I just want to know when you decided, Kelly Ferreira, you're, you're a ninth grade teacher now. Um, but that's how did you decide you wanted to be a teacher? Because a lot of times people um, really, that's not what I want to do. Sorry about that, guys. I'm engineering at the same time that I'm doing all this stuff, too. So it's live radio. That's what happens. So, Kelly, when you decided you wanted to be a teacher, the rumor is and the narrative is that um, teaching is very hard. It's very difficult. It's low paying. Nobody really wants to do it. Um, a lot of people, the reality is a lot of people are not going into the profession or leaving the profession. But you said that you actually wanted to be a teacher. You actually want to be a teacher and you're a mom and a teacher. How did that come about? Oh, good question. Um, I think I've always loved kids. Um, I love teaching kids. I especially love books and English. And I definitely seen after college, there was a gap after I took a gap year after college and I was a teacher's assistant. And I seen there was a lot of struggles that my kids had and I they loved communicating and sharing that with me 
Um, so I wanted to be that person for them where I could have a relationship with them but at the same time, teach them things that they definitely, I don't think they were really prepared for um, at this time, or I don't even know if students are really being prepared for at this moment. Um, but I definitely wanted to have the opportunity to give kids that chance to be prepared for this world because it is a hard world. So I definitely wanted to be that person for my kids. So tell me what you teach. I mean, tell our audience what you teach. Yeah, ninth grade English. Um, ELA, English ELA, Language Arts. Mm-hmm. English Language Arts. We are reading a lot of books from Maya Angelou to Malcolm Gadwell. Um, we are reading, writing, we're reading comparative texts, we're comparing and contrasting and just giving to kids an opportunity to like state their own ideas and opinions compared to the texts that they're reading. Thank you. And Michael Holiday, um, I met you literally in the doorway to an institution. Um, Dimmick is it was in the building. And thank you for the gift of the books that you you bless Black Teachers Matter with today. We are definitely um, going to put that to use. And one of the books talks about racism. I think the um, grade level is elementary school, maybe mm, age six or seven or so, five, six, seven. That particular book, I don't. I should have the book with me. I didn't do that. But um, when you are, when you got into teaching, and you actually, I think you were in Teach for America, but you also taught in New York, right? That was me. Was oh, that was you. Yeah. Okay. I was in New York, but uh, so I started off with counseling uh, mm-hmm. with the college advising corps and the South Bronx. I was at a school called the Cinema School. They are honestly a great school, but they also showed me everything I needed to know in order to get more interested in education and really inter- interested in the, the system mm-hmm. and really trying to knock it down. But Now, you're originally from, you're not from New York. I'm originally from Boston. I grew up in Dorchester, literally two minutes away from Kelly, but I was on Columbia Road. Mm-hmm. Columbia Road. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. Uh, let's let's talk about that. Yeah. Well, there's people that will listen to this and not know the whole history of Columbia Road. I'm a little bit uh, older than you guys, so I can talk about the history of what I remember. <clears throat> Excuse me, Columbia Road. Back in the day, Columbia Road was one of those dividing lines between the black community and the white community. Mm-hmm. And so the Strand was, and still is, you know, a theater. Now it's more um, into theater arts and performances and stuff like that. But before, I'm going to bring you all back to how old I am, how seasoned I am. Let's put it like that. You could go to the movies for 25 cents and see two movies and a cartoon in between 25 cents. But you had to fight your way. On one side of Columbia Road and on the to come back to the other side of Columbia Road, like around the Interville Street, more towards the black side, right? So mm-hmm. if you went to, um, and there was the Bird Street Gym, which was on the way down there. And um, so we could go to the Bird Street Gym. You could go to the Strand. But if you went too far on the other side of that, you had to fight your way back. So I remember, so I don't know what part of Columbia Road, you lived on Columbia Road, correct? Right next to the Burger King, honestly, right across the street. So you were in, well, you were in the black hand side. So you're yeah. closer up to the Franklin Park, um, Washington Street. Exactly. That was the safe zone. You didn't have to fight your way back from that way. <laughs> um, so that's interesting. So now you got into counseling and teaching, and then you uh, 
but I met you at Dimmick and also when I interviewed you um upstairs at the other in the other studio on yep. my other show on another level we talked about the organization heal so you want to talk about that a little bit too yep so i'll give a little bit of background um so i started in counseling and like you know uh college prep courses um and after a year of just doing both counseling and teaching i understood like there's a lot more to this that we're not tapping into um so i went to grad school at nyu and got my master's in educational leadership, politics, and advocacy. So after I graduated, this was about three years later, I was still counseling and teaching. As soon as I graduated, I literally understood. I focused on uh, education policy in that program. And I learned everything I needed to know to understand that I did not want to be in traditional schools anymore. I wanted to build my own educational spaces um, that included more knowledge about health equity and like understanding our history and learning like what the system does to black and brown folk. Um, so immediately afterwards, I started working with an organization called Odessa Health and they were able to allow me to create multiple different spaces um, to educate students in a real way. And one of those uh, was created last summer and it was called HEAL Academy, um, that stands for Health Equity, Advocacy, and Leadership. So that's basically what we focused on. We Our curriculum was based on health and wellness, but we focused on mental health. We made sure students had every single uh, support that they need and understood what resources were around them, including from the Demic Center, from so many different places around them, um, and how to be healthy and live through life. And the point of that is when you're at your healthiest or when you're conscious of health and what you need to do to be healthy, it's a lot easier to learn the things that you need to learn. Let's talk about that in terms of the pandemic, because there was a lot of learning loss in the pandemic mm -hmm. and there was a lot of focus on um, social, emotional, you know, the, the, um, well, the, the impact, the psychological and emotional impact of the pandemic because the whole world was looking on how do we stay healthy, how do we stay alive. But then um, as teachers, we all had to consider what did that mean? Legally, That you had to consider what did that mean? Because you could literally look into somebody's house. I mean, they were literally on Zoom. We were asking people to be on camera. And then you could tell if there was a dedicated place in their house that they could actually even have a classroom or even yeah. have a place. And then you would hear what was happening in the house and it's one thing to be in the classroom and then your students bugging out and you don't know if it happened on the way there. It was something that happened the night before, something that's happening in there at home. But then you're hearing people in the background while you're trying to have class with that student. And so the socially emotional learning piece and that whole emotional and that health and wellness piece. Can you talk about that? Like how how did that change or did it change for you um, with the students and the young people you were dealing with you and Kelly, if you can chime in as well? Yeah. Um, so actually, that was my last year of, of teaching, <laughs> the remote learning year of mm -hmm. the pandemic. So I decided that year I would just be a full time teacher. And I taught a class called Foundational Leadership for 12th grade. And from start to finish of that year, I was teaching in Brooklyn that year. Uh, from start to finish, we were remote, fully remote. Um, 
and we were continuously trying to, you know, learn new ways to learn on Zoom. But it was a disaster, to say the least. Um, And exactly what you just said, a lot of different issues or out of school factors that we didn't usually pay attention to, or by we, I mean schools and the systems that they run on, did not usually pay attention to about students were clear, literally illuminated through you being able to either see through their camera or mm-hmm. hear what was going on or the fact that they weren't showing up mm-hmm. for all of the different reasons. And it was hard for a black teacher to see all the issues, understand them from that point of view or, or sometimes from personal experience and then still go on and enforce all of the different Mm. classroom norms Mm -hmm. or disciplining norms or all the different things that schools run on that was shown to be obsolete as soon as as soon as the pandemic started ineffective really ineffective yeah Mm -hmm. so so um kelly can you talk about that too yeah it was definitely hard to see my kids who in person were doing great and then as soon as the pandemic happened um, they just fell off. And for many reasons, a lot of parents were working during the pandemic and they needed to, I needed a babysitter. Um, so a lot of my students were at home, but were not able to be in class. So a lot of it was devastating. I think for a teacher, it was hard to pay attention to the many kids who were not there, but at the same time, try to be a great teacher, but also recognize and acknowledge that they also have lives and they are in a pandemic and, it's it's not going to be easy for them, and it wasn't easy for them. It was really sad, I think, <laughs> to say the least. And and then the other thing that um, was difficult is being a mandated reporter, yep. because that legally came up to you're hearing stuff in the back. You might even be seeing somebody smoking weed or something, and you know something's going on. And as a black teacher, you can hopefully you can put it into a context of well. This is not anything out of the norm, but I know that there were instances where there were teachers who were not of color who were starting to panic. Like, oh, is that really something I need to report? So did you encounter anything like that in your take on on that particular being a mandated reporter, but then also being in someone's house? So honestly, I'm going to be real. When it came to mandated reporting in that situation mm-hmm. and remote learning during the pandemic, mm-hmm. I reported where I could and what I thought was useful to report. But because I was naturally a counselor, because that's how I started in schools, I would try to handle it myself. Honestly, mm-hmm. I would try to support students in the ways that I knew that they needed support. They needed to do one on ones with me no matter what. So during those one on ones, I would try to like help out. It wasn't always about whatever the purpose of this one-on-one is. I'm here to support. Let me know how I can support. I know we can't, like, see each other in person, but let me know what I can help you understand, what resources I could point you towards, or whatever issues are going on. If you need to vent, I was there for it. I was very close with the counselors in the school I was in while remote learning. So I always would... Mandate. I would report all the different things that I, I saw, but it wasn't really like, it didn't feel like mandated reporting. It felt like, hey, this is what's going on. Mm-hmm. I know all the things that are going on when students aren't showing up or when students are showing up and I can't get them to respond or the different situations that 
occurred. So, so I was I, pulling in the team. Exactly. Okay. And so if you've just tuned in, you're listening to WBCA LP 102.9 FM in Boston. We are Boston's community radio station. My name is Sharon Hinton. I'm your host and producer of Black Teachers Matter. My guests here are Kelly Ferreira and Michael Holliday, both black teachers, if you didn't notice. Um, we're in radio, but we also are in a podcast. So for those of us in the podcast, you can see it. For those of you in radio, you can hear it. Um, we're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back here on Black Teachers Matter, here on WBCA 102.9 FM in Boston. What is dedication? My daughter started making necklaces. She makes what we call affirmation fashion. I tell her every day that your black is beautiful. Your black is beautiful. And if there's anything better than being beautiful, it's being smart. If there's anything better than being smart, it's being kind. And reaffirming that every day is our method of making sure her chin never drops. My dad wasn't around. And I remember riding a bike and falling off and cutting myself. And me never just wanted to get back on it. People ask, how your children learn how to ride a bike? And you didn't. I didn't teach them. I just created an environment where they taught themselves. And all I had to do was be there. That's dedication. Visit fatherhood.gov to hear more. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. Psychologist, social worker, drug expert, sex counselor, substitute parent, and friend. Now those are some of the things teachers have to be before they even get down to teaching. Now the more you know what it takes to be a teacher these days, the more you realize that it's one of the toughest, most important jobs in the world. So what can you do to thank your teacher? It's simple. Learn. This newspaper's got good news and bad news. The good news is that it's loaded with jobs for accountants and lawyers and nurses and carpenters and every other kind of skilled worker. The bad news is that there isn't a single ad for a school dropout, at least nothing you'd want. The more you know how tough things are for school dropouts, the more you'll see you have no choice. You have to stay in school. Think about it. What is dedication? My biggest fear in the middle of my addiction was that my kids wouldn't have a father. Back here at Black Teachers Matter, here on WBCA 102.9 FM, I'm your host, Sharon Eaton Hinton, and the producer of Black Teachers Matter, another edition here with my wonderful guest, Kelly Ferreira, who was born and raised in largely a Cape Verdean community here in Dorchester. In 2013, she graduated from Codman Academy and went on to study anthropology. Check that out. <laughs> she studied anthropology at the College of the Holy Cross in Worcester, and she served in many assistant teaching opportunities during her undergraduate years. She chose to become an AmeriCorps member at the Phoenix Charter School in Springfield, and after her tenure there, Ended at Phoenix, she joined Teach for America's Western Mass Cohort. Simultaneously, she studied to get her master's in education from Boston University. And then two years later, she graduated from both Teach for America and Boston University. In 2021, 
She became a teacher at the Brook Charter High School, and she's currently a ninth grade writing teacher. Yay! Can we get some applause here? And she's a mama. And so doing all of that stuff is like incredible. Um, Anyone who is, and I'm going to get to you, Michael. Don't think I'm leaving you because you had something to do with this production too here with Miss Kelly. Um, and, and, And your daughter, if I can say that. Yes. Who yeah. We won't put her name out into the universe yet. Um, so, um, I, you know, I'm being a mother and, and no shade to the fathers because I just finished playing a public service announcement about fatherhood. So we got to give the big ups to the kings and the queens. But being a mother and being in the classroom and um, what part of what you saw or who you want to be as mother, if anything, are you bringing into the classroom? I know I, I was teaching um, before I was a mother. Um, and so there was a different energy. And then there was the balancing of being a parent yep. and being involved in the school and then also being a teacher. Do you, do you feel, how do you do it? I know you do it because you're doing it, but yep. how do you feel the challenges? And especially, is it a difference when you're a black teacher? Is it just a woman teacher? How does that work? They're my kids. Um, I think before I became a mother, I've always called my kids my kids. Um, from the relationships I build with them, how they talk to me, they reach out to me even after hours. Um, I think I do. I think it's really important to build a relationship with my kids outside of the classroom. It's also just get to know them. I like they can come to me for whatever it is. Um, if that's relationships, which a lot of my ninth graders right now are dealing with, um, but family issues and sports or anything like that, um, I just make sure that I'm there for them. I think as a color, a teacher of color, um, they have a lot of white teachers and it's very different when they see me in the classroom and I'm very comfortable with them and I can talk to them and I can reach out to their parents and understand, um, but I've been there. I've been in their seat before. I've also been to charter schools my whole life. Um, so working at a charter school, I think they also see that I also went to a school where uniform was required and mm-hmm. we had to be silent in the hallways or the classrooms. There was a different level of respect, I think. Um, so, yeah, they're, they're my, I don't know, they're my kids. At the end of the day, they're my kids, and they know it even now as I'm leaving. They're like, can I talk to you after when you go on break, your oh, fraternity yeah. leave? Oh, yeah. And I'm like, I'm just make sure you're doing great in school. <laughs> That's all I want from you. So when I come back, we're at a good place. Well, as someone who's been teaching for over 45 years, you, you never get rhythm. I mean, uh, you know, Thanksgiving, I actually had invited two of my former students from Northeastern University and and um, they're 40 now. <laughs> I met, I met them when they were undergrads, when they were 18, 17, 18, and 19. It's like straight cats, man. You fed them once, you got them, meow. No. You got them forever, right? <laughs> they don't go away. So, Michael, let's get to you. Michael Holiday, born and raised in Dorchester, or if you come from here, Dorchester, <laughs> um, <laughs> and graduated from the Academy of the Pacific Rim. You went on to study at Africana Studies... Oh, my goodness. In Chinese at Hamilton College in upstate New York. After obtaining his bachelor's degree in 2017, Mike moved to New York City to work for the NYU chapter of the College Advising Corps. 
After a year of college advising in South Bronx Public School, he went in to get his master's from NYU. We talked about that before the break in educational leadership. Uh, master's degree, excuse me, with a concentration in educational policy and in educational leadership, politics, and advocacy. In 2020, he obtained his master's degree with a concentration in educational policy. After working in some of New York City top charter schools, we can name those if you want to, <laughs> Mike decided it was time to step out of traditional teaching, and we talked about that in the counseling roles and how that worked together. And he worked as a fundraiser and development professional, and he says, in untraditional educational spaces. Uh, he's now director of the community outreach at the Dimmick Center and works with a lot of community partners, creating healthier and more equitable spaces to learn for low-income and underrepresented students students underrepresented students underrepresented students mike what does that mean underrepresented students because i think when i when i think of um public schools so let's talk about the difference between new york and boston because there is a distinct difference in terms of the structures and um and the politics right because you've got this you've got new york and then you've got boston and boston to me is like a big town it's a very small city and new york is is new york and you've got the boroughs and the ps schools and everything, what was the difference, um, or is there a difference, do you think? I think there's a large difference. I think geographically there's definitely a difference. Like with the boroughs in New York City, every borough is different. I taught in two of them, tech, well, three of them. I started off in the South Bronx in public schools. That was completely different from when I taught in Harlem, I taught at Democracy Prep Charter Schools. That's like, I think, number two in that city for charter schools. Um, And then the year later, I taught with uh, Achievement First at their Unity University Prep in Brooklyn. Um, Each school looked different. Each school sounded different. Each school ran differently. The last two were both charter schools, but they did their schools and everything differently, like, the operations of both of those charter schools were completely different. One of them was more focused on like achieving and Mm. you would think that was achievement first, but no, that was democracy prep. The achievements that they focused on were all just, just how far students could go. I loved it. And the curriculums were amazing, but at the same time, you can still see all the issues that exist from the system. You couldn't blame just one person for all the things that you saw. It was literally the system forcing schools' hands uh, mm. figuratively. But you could see it in all three, just in different ways. And when I worked in a public school, it was new for me because, just like Kelly, I, I've been in charter schools for at least every grade after grade five. And that's really what I can remember is charter schools, the strictness of charter schools, but like also the rigor. Um, and so when I was in the public school, and it was like... You weren't being forced to do well if you were doing well. You were just doing well. And if you weren't doing well, well, <laughs> I hope you knew what you were getting yourself into. Wow. That's um, <clears throat> problematic, to say the least. I've got experience between going to school and and teaching in public, private, charter, independent. And I have to say that there's positives and negatives to both of them. Yeah. Um, and also, it's a, it was a different era. Um, when I went to school, again, I'm, I'm showing my 
<laughs> experience and seasoning here. Um, you were, it, there was corporal punishment was still legal. I mean, you could still rat tan a kid. You could still, you know, whip their hands. You could still, um, you could still hit them. Uh, you can't do that now without a lawsuit. Seriously. Um, you could do that. I remember um, my father was a black nationalist at the beginning of the school assembly in the beginning of class. You would pledge allegiance to the flag and put your hand over your heart. We were forbidden to do that in my home. And so my teachers wanted to suspend us and try to um, rat tan us. And, you know, you hit your, they take a, a pointer or, or a ruler or something and smack your hands and stuff. And so, um, you know, my teacher said, what are you, a communist? What is wrong with you? Aren't you an American? And um, I was in elementary school and I said, my father told me not to pledge allegiance to a country that treats me like a secondhand citizen. I mean, we were just like, no, we weren't doing it. My father's not doing it. You can get him up here. He'll tell you the same thing. And then um, I was also in the Nation of Islam. So when, um, you know, my my uh, father came up there, he was like, nope, my kids, you're not going to hit my kids. I don't hit my kids. They're more afraid of me than they are of you. And so they do what I tell them to do. And what's up with the math homework? So I was like, whoa, 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 wait. You don't have to ask for any more homework. I mean, we can just stick with the intimidating the teacher kind of a thing and, and sticking to the um, mantra of not pledging allegiance to a country that, te- that treated me less than. And so that was, um, I, I started in that in Boston Public Schools, but then we had shop and we had home economics. And now it's very much, and that was public school. And you also had a language. I learned French in elementary school. Um, and that's, it seems like, and there's a history behind why there's no more shop. There's a history why. They, things have changed and certain people from certain elite schools had uh, certain ideologies and methodologies that were imposed or imposed on the public school system because they had positions of influence, whether superintendents or whatever. And so um, I, I have a knee-jerk reaction as someone who was taught in public and private and charter schools to this whole disciplinary thing and how that sometimes gets interchanged with the term rigor. Um, I have a problem with teaching kids to be silent in the hallways. When I went to Beaver Country Day School, and that was the culture because it would get in the way. Um, I have a problem. And, and when I was teaching um, in a charter school, in an elementary school, they had the kids lined up single file with their fingers over their mouth and they couldn't talk. Mm-hmm. And when I spoke to a friend of mine who's actually a correctional officer at South Bay, I said, bruh, they got us doing that. And, and before I could finish telling him what they were doing, he says, oh, they're getting them ready for me. And he's at a prison system. So can we talk a little bit about the prison, the school to prison pipeline and the conditioning? Because to me, and if you just tuned in, this is Black Teachers Matter here at WBCA LP 102.9 FM in Boston. Um, I, I, I'm like you. Uh, Michael, I'm looking at the non-traditional ways that our people, as indigenous people, learn. As our children, who are born geniuses, are conditioned away from their genius. Uh, I've taught elementary, middle, high school, undergrad, and graduate. I love my teenagers. Honestly, Kelly, God bless you. <laughs> I don't have the I don't have the energy anymore for the little kids. <laughs> they wear me out, man. I mean, I, you got to be on all the time, and you're entertaining them, and you're learning them. I just don't have the energy anymore. And there's a different kind of energy for um, older kids. Different, still intense 
a different intensity and different issues, obviously. And so I want to talk about the ninth grade, because I taught ninth grade, Kelly, um, and the fact that some of these schools, the kids were being kept back. I had a ninth grader. No, actually, she was an eighth grader, and she was already 18 in the eighth grade. And this was a charter school. And I was like, what do you do to a kid? So they're actually supposed to be close to graduating, and you've got them in the eighth grade. Like, what is happening there? Can you talk to me about some of your experiences with our children who are being taught by, um, let's be real, majority of white women who are not familiar with our culture, who are afraid of our children and don't know. um, And they're ignorant, not because they're racist. They just are not, that's not their culture. That's not their vibe. They don't understand that. But there's this control of our kids as if um, they should be afraid of our kids as opposed to, and, and that's not everybody. I'm making a blanket statement. Obviously, this that does not apply to all white teachers or all teachers or even all black teachers, because just because you're a black teacher doesn't mean that you couldn't be detrimental either. Yeah. So let's be clear about that. But let's talk about this little uh, uh, this this what they call classroom management, because yeah. it, it comes off like it's so benign, but it really isn't. So can we talk about the school to prison pipeline from a black teacher's perspective? Yeah, um, I. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, my first job out of college, worked at a school where um, my students struggled in education, had stepped away from education, and decided to come back. My first year teaching, I actually had a student who we were literally born on the same day and same year. She was 22, I Mm. was 22, Mm. and I was her teacher. Mm. Um, But it was excellent. She was coming back to school, and I was teaching her school and she was trying to graduate and she was doing what she needed to do Mm. um to move on um but i've seen so many kids just get ignored pushed forward and they don't have the education i had a kid who was 26 and did not know math Mm. but was being pushed every single year and i have i have no idea why that is it's either Teachers don't want to deal with them because they were students who were absent, um, had a lot of medical issues, and they did the minimum, so they just didn't want to deal with them, and they just pushed them forward. Or I also had students who went to jail, had Mm. bracelets on their legs, and Mm -hmm. came back to school because they were, I wouldn't say forced to, but um, they needed a place to stay. Um, But it's... Like you said in the beginning, education is at a very rough place right now. And I think we definitely need to do a lot better of making sure our kids are thriving. Mm. I I see a lot of kids surviving at this point. They're trying to survive. They're trying to make it through ninth grade, 10th grade, 11th grade. But a lot of us teachers are trying to make sure, well, I am at least, I am trying to make sure they are thriving in English. They're, they are doing what they need to do to understand math so that they're not going, whatever space it is, they're not going into these spaces where they're just confused. And I think a lot of, I've had a lot of kids, it's really sad. I've had a lot of kids who no one's believed in them. And I, I, I just, I'm hoping and praying I am that person for them. Mm. So, I mean, statistics, and there's plenty of reports 
that say that if a black student sees a black teacher by grade three, they're 13% more likely to graduate. If they see two black teachers in elementary school, they're 40% more likely to go to college. Um, That's, that's, you know, that's the federal government. That's, um, you know, the Education Association. So that's facts. I mean, we didn't come up with that. That's there. And yet and still, and there's many reasons why, um, and it's mostly political, um, of why, and, and I say that knowing that um, some of our collaborators and, and, and comrades in in New Orleans, which is a totally the first completely charter school that was, um, huh, Hurricane Katrina allowed that to happen for the charter schools to come in there and change the emission system. Um, you know, you talked about uh, New York, and I remember the story of uh, Michael about Brownsville and how mm-hmm. when the community actually took control of the black schools for the black teachers and the parents in the community was involved, the Jewish teachers pushed back politically and mm-hmm. forced that to um, close. And it was a big, huge political. Now there's a friend of ours, Rosita Shatandra, in Chicago, who is um, the leader of CAUSE, um, basically uh, BIPOC, you know, black indigenous people of color, organization of over 10,000 teachers in Chicago. And during a time when the president <clears throat> was black <laughs> and the head of the public institution in Chicago was black, basically um, forced out over 10,000 black teachers out of this public school system. Mm-hmm. So we, we talk about that, but I want to get back to the prison, the school to prison pipeline. I can tell you that I was pushing back from the inside in my own way because I thought that the methods of telling kids to shut up in the hallway and doing these draconian kinds of things was oppressive. I mean, it was so reminiscent of, of jail, prison, and slavery to me. I, 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 it hurt me. Sometimes I really, really had to go into the bathroom and really cry and had to ask myself, am I doing this and becoming part of the system and part of the problem because this is my job? And I have to do this. And I, and I want to, you know, you don't have to answer this thing because you're still teaching. But I'm just I would like to get your feedback, especially from you, Michael, because you talked about alternative uh, teaching methods and alternatives for schooling. Michael. Yep. yep. So let's really like let's break it down. Let's start with disciplining. So when I was studying for my master's, one of the biggest like topics I would focus on in papers and like policy briefs, all the different things was the disciplining of young black men. Mm-hmm. They were literally the most disciplined, or they probably still remain, but when I was studying then, they were the most disciplined population in New York City public schools. They were the most expelled. And most and, likely to be termed special education. Exactly. And I can't remember the specific numbers of what's happening in Boston, but it's like if you're expelled from, I think, three schools, you're more likely to be incarcerated after the age of 18. And it's it's clear to me. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it's it's crazy how the, it's kind of like a, like an illustration of what really happens within the world. Mm-hmm. Um, we're clearly, think about the prisons. We represent a larger number within the prisons than we do in our population in this country. Mm-hmm. It's the same exact thing and discipline, or let's just think of suspension and expulsion and schools. It's the same thing for young black men. 
Now, Kelly, you said you grew up in a charter school. You teach in a charter school. What would you like to change now, if you could, if you were the superintendent, if you were in a position of power, and you could really make it the way you want it to be, what would you change? Give me three things. Three things. Um, Grace would be one for, I think, a lot of our black and brown students. I think something will happen in the classroom and immediately it's suspension um, without having a conversation, without figuring out what actually happened behind it. I think a lot of our students need grace. Um, but they just, they're not receiving maybe outside of the classroom or at, at home. Um, that's one. I think we need a lot more black and brown counselors, principals, leaders in the schooling, having these conversations once kids are suspended or they are, um, on the path of expulsion. Um, I think we have a different understanding than a white teacher or leader would have, um, a third thing? I don't know, Michael. What would be a third thing? A third thing that we need yeah, to break the system down. But shout out to all my abolitionists. Hello. <laughs> Hello. Come on. I knew somebody was going to come up with that. <laughs> Honestly, Dr. I feel Bettina like... Love, come on now. <laughs> yeah. I feel like there's an argument that so many people could make. But it's no matter how much we transform the system, we know the root and what it was, which it was built Mm. and what it was purposed to do. What you do in terms of your your training because of policy and around leadership, I'm not sure if the teachers who are at that level do. Do you, do you really think that they understand what part of the matrix they're actually playing? So I think that's a trick question because <laughs> while I think they don't always understand, and that's an understatement, they don't always understand the policies that are at play and the bigger system at large, I don't think we need to stop teaching within the system. Mm -hmm. Um, I feel like if we stop teaching within the system, then we're just laying down for the system to do exactly what it was created to do to our black and brown uh, children and students out there. Um, I think the answer sometimes, maybe not all the time, but I think the answer sometimes is to get more, like Kelly said, representative teachers within the classroom, but teaching in defiant ways, not teaching under the system and listening to all the rules, teach students what they need to learn. Mm. So, um, wow, we're coming down to like 15 minutes left. left. And I knew this was going to happen, so we definitely need a part two. (sighs) My father, Cornell Eaton, um, was one of the architects and uh, with Ruth Batson and Ellen Jackson to create Operation Exodus, which became METCO. And uh, METCO 50 years later is what it is, right? It's supposed to be gaining access to um, education, to the resources that black parents were paying for with their taxes that they weren't getting in Boston Public Schools. And I remember philosophically my father saying that he differed with Ellen Jackson and Ruth Batson and said, we, this, is, this should only be a temporary solution while we build our own schools because the system is never going to really teach us what we need to do in terms of dismantling the system. And so there goes that, that discussion about abolitionist teaching, right? 
understanding that this is um, what we need. And this goes back to the disciplinary thing that I was talking about. As a black woman, as a black mother, I never had to use the draconian kinds of disciplinary, you know, professional, unprofessional um, grading system that behavior modification, because I could just look at my kids and they knew to straighten up. They knew what was coming. It was like, I didn't have to do that. You knew what was up. I've used that in elementary school and middle school, especially in high school and in college where you would think that there would be more pushback. And my experience with our children, they want that structure, but they're going to test you on it. It's like, okay, is your walk talking louder than your talk talks? And they'll test you. What's your experience, Kelly? I think a lot of my, a lot of my, I agree. Um, in my classroom, I am, I could just look at them. <laughs> I could just yep. look at them and yep. they know I need respect and I need a, a, a moment to talk. Um, and they just, they just know. But at the same time, I'm also very respectful of them. Um, if they needed space or they needed time or if they just wanted to chat or I think I used to teach two hour classes um, and we would have five minute breaks or 10 minute breaks. Um, and that was just a chance for them to breathe. Cause I know I'm, I'm teaching for two hours. I know it's hard. So imagine sitting there for two hours um, and just listening and just working. It's super hard. So I think, yeah, it's, it's different as a student. It's different being a teacher now um, in charter schools while being, after having been a student in charter school, I was af- not afraid, um, but it was the, you need to be quiet or you're going to get a detention. Mm. You can't walk the halls and be loud or you're going to get a detention. You have to stay after school. I've had my cell phone taken away many times because I was too <laughs> loud um, in classrooms, hallways, or even eating lunch. Um, but see, even the thing that you're saying now, I know is programming from that charter school thing, yep. being too loud. Um, that to me is a judgment call based on a cultural incompetence when it comes to dealing with our people. And, and that's I'm saying this from experiencing from it being from a, being a teacher and also being a student. I went to a private school and the culture was you were so um you wanted to learn and you didn't want to miss a moment of it. But also the, the the school had the resources and had the money, but the mindset that if you were interested in something as a student, they didn't have to wait for the budget to allow for a teacher to come and instruct you. They found a way to, to fuel your genius, yep. period. And so you didn't want to miss out in the class. You wanted to be there. And I've also been in public schools and charter schools where um, – my kids were in the class before me because they couldn't wait for me to teach them what they wanted to hear because they knew I was coming to them to make them better and to bring out what they had in them as opposed to control what was in them. Yep. Does that make sense? Yep. I mean, I'm, I'm speaking to the choir right now, but, <laughs> but the choir that is not the choir is um, the people that are listening to us in WBCA LP 102.9 FM. We're coming down to the last moments here. On this edition of Black Teachers Matter with my guest, Kelly Ferreira, who's a ninth grade teacher, an educator, and also um, (sighs) Mr. Michael Holliday. I'm learning so much about you, young king. You are just fascinating, (laughs) both of you. And the fact that 
Well, can I say that you have something to do with this production that's happening in the studio that may be coming up within the leg? I don't want to. Okay, I won't say it. But anyway, <laughs> you know, to me that um, there is something um, that's, that's that's spiritual. There's something that when you are, I think that being a teacher is a calling, like a doctor or a minister. And there are some people that are in the classroom that shouldn't be near my dog. Never mind near somebody's children. I'm serious about that. I mean, there, there's some people that have worked their way into being heads of schools and superintendents uh-huh. and headmasters, and, and they shouldn't. They should be in a, in a back room with a computer with something with no emotions and no feelings. They they know how to work the system and get into the system, but they're also part of the problem, and I don't think they even realize they're part of the problem, and um, and and everybody thinks that they're trying to do their best, but I have experienced um, some of my kids attempting suicide. And that was in middle school and in high school and in college. Um, They couldn't take it. Um, Some of them didn't make it. I've experienced my kids breaking down. And when I say kids, because they're younger than me, um, breaking down in class, students that academically were stellar, um, but emotionally they're coming from a home where maybe their dad just went to jail or they just had an encounter would possibly go into jail. Michael, can you speak to that, that, that trying to navigate those two worlds? Um, yeah, honestly, that was part of the reason why I found so much interest in education in general. It wasn't because like I thought I could come in and fix anything. It was because I saw the lack of support. Me growing up, there was a lot going on all the time. There was a lot going on at home. We didn't always have all the resources we needed. I loved my grandparents, but at the same time, we were in the struggle sometimes, Mm. (laughs) more often than not. And um, no one ever asked at school, what's happening at home? Mm -hmm. And partially because I was a bright student. Yeah, A student, sometimes I got Bs, but at the same time, that's all people focused on. Mm. And... Then I didn't know it, but after when I went to college, after I graduated from high school, I noticed that I was not prepared. Like I was not prepared to go into a predominantly white institution. I wasn't prepared to learn in those classrooms at such a high level without honestly understanding myself, my mental health, the wellness part of it all. But you say that after coming from the Academy of the Pacific Rim, which is one of the Premier, it's ta- one of those models that touts itself because you're learning, you know, Chinese, and yep. and it's it's supposed to be one of those progressive charter schools that's on the edge. And then you're saying you're not prepared. How does how does that work? I'll say this. So I think the principal when I was there, Jen Kalasako, was probably the best principal I've ever seen. And I hate to say it because I'm literally praising like a white principal, but she did all the right things. Mm. But even she couldn't beat the system. Wow. And it showed through my experience. It showed through how I felt when I got to college. I stayed in touch with it with a long, like for a long time. When I got to college and I wasn't prepared for the math classes that I thought I was going to kill, mm. I called her. I told her. We, we literally talked about it for hours. She gave me all the advice that she could. She told me what to do, go get tutoring, all the things, go to office hours, whatever. But at the root of the issue, it was... I just wasn't prepared for it. I didn't have all the best advising that I could. And I I love my my college advisors. They're probably the best in the city still. But it doesn't change what the system does to us. You can have which is what? Tell me specifically. 
it literally <laughs> you really want me to say it it yes. brainwashes us yes. out of being prepared for anything that matters there are anomalies out there who get through these systems and can sit in the seats that we're in currently or can go to these top schools but at the same time the evidence is always there mm. we've got three minutes left can you believe it um i believe it because i know how this works can you give me some advice for someone who is of color who's thinking about being a teacher kelly I would say do it. Um, there is a large reward in working with kids. Um, I prefer high schoolers. <laughs> I do too. Um, but the relationships you build, the conversations, it also just makes you a better person. I think I've grown a lot in my patience, who I am as a person, just understanding that there's always a different side. And then there's always more to the story, um, and you should never hold it against yourself. It's 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 rewarding. I would say it's definitely challenging, and you will have a lot of days. There were a lot of days I cried in my classroom, um, but at the same time, I went home knowing that one day there is going to be a kid in the next 10 years who are going to call out to me. And just remember that one joke in classroom or the writing assignment that I created for them that really meant something to them. Um, I would say do it. Michael? Entertain, <clears throat> entertain untraditional educational spaces. There are a lot of different organizations out there that offer you opportunities to teach, and it might not be the way to get certified, or it might not be in front of a ninth grade classroom, but you will be able to teach people the real lessons they need to learn. They need to learn in order to educate people in real ways, in authentic ways, or ways that can bring us to the real. Mm. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Michael Holiday. Thank you, Kelly Ferreira. Congratulations. Thank you so much for being here in this edition of Black Thank Teachers you. Matter. I really appreciate you so much, and I appreciate you guys for being here with us this evening. Um, you've been listening to Black Teachers Matter here at WBCA LP 102.9 FM in Boston. We are Boston's community radio station. I got a little story for you. There will be a lot of posts soon with people sharing how much they achieved in 2023. But in case someone needs to hear this, just making it to January 2024 is an achievement. It's okay if the only significant thing you did this year was get through it. That alone is something to celebrate. Have a wonderful holiday. Take care of yourself and each other. God bless you. And thank you. This is another edition of Black Teachers Matter here with your host, Sharon Eaton Hinton. Good night. <laughs>